Today on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast, we've got Robert Chiasaw on from dryflysalmon.com. Today, Robert gives us his three biggest tips and tactics on finding and catching an Atlantic salmon on a dry fly. Plus, we get the story of what it felt like to land and see this 48-inch Atlantic salmon caught on the surface on a bomber. This is a crazy story. Robert is the best person you can find if you want to fish the Marguerite River, the waters in Nova Scotia and Cape Breton. You're going to find out how to dead drift a fly. You're going to find out how to fish a seam and how to find those fish in that seam with a dry. Why the reach cast is a great cast to know and the best hook for Atlantic salmon. Here we go. Robert Chiasaw from dryflysalmon.com. How you doing, Robert? I'm doing fine, Dave. Good, good. Hey, pronounce your last name again so we get that right. Chiasson. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. Okay, good. And uh, so obviously from your last name, it's it's obvious kind of where you are. You're, you're in the eastern part of Canada, uh, Nova Scotia. We're going to be talking everything, the marguerite, Atlantic salmon, fished uh, dry flies. I mean, this is going to be a great episode because I think we're going to be talking about what a lot of people would like to do. So we're going to cover all of that and go deep into um, Atlantic salmon fishing. But before we get there, let's take it back to you, fly fishing. How'd you get into it? What's your first memory out there? Well, I grew up in a small French Acadian village uh, about half hour north of the Marguerite. And uh, my parents had a small motel and restaurant business on the Shetty Camp River. Um, I grew up bilingual, speaking both French and English, and grew up learning to salmon fish on the Shetty Camp River and eventually uh, became a guide on the Shetty Camp and started fishing the Marguerite as an older teenager. And and then uh, I've been guiding regularly since 1992. 1992. Perfect. And and the Shetty Camp River now, is that, um, I guess that's in the area. Talk about some of the rivers. So the Marguerite you hear a lot about, uh, Cape Breton, that area. What are some of the big river or the rivers that you could fish out there? Well, speaking of the big, the Marguerite is the big name river. And wherever you have a, a big name river, there's always smaller rivers around to complement that big name river. And, and the Shetty Camp is one of the smaller rivers as well as the middle and the Bedeck and the North rivers here in, on Cape Breton Island that are, you know, within a comfortable driving distance of the Marguerite that we fish at different times of the year as well as the Marguerite. And why is the Marguerite, why does that one get the, why is it the big name? Why, why aren't there other ones out there that you hear more about? Well, the Marguerite is the, the larger of the rivers on Cape Breton Island and has the largest run of Atlantic salmon. Yeah. So that's a, pretty much that's where if you want to get into a fish, if you're, well, let's just say somebody's new to it, they're coming up to that area. And this is the cool thing about it is that this is a trip that you could potentially go uh, maybe DIY uh, yourself. Is that is that true? First talk about that on the DIY, or is this something where you really need a guide to be able to find a fish? Well, no, actually it's a very good uh, DIY river in the sense Nova Scotia in general, um, guides aren't mandatory. Of course, everyone knows when you go on trips that uh, guides can increase your, <laughs> yeah. your chances exponentially, but uh, Nova Scotia has all public water as well. So in terms of a destination for Atlantic salmon fishing, what's really unique to the, the Atlantic salmon fly fishing world is that Nova Scotia is a, an inexpensive place to come and fish for salmon because you can get a one-week non-resident license for under $70 Canadian and you don't need to hire a guide and it's all public water and public access. So that's pretty inviting. Gotcha. And typically, you know, in some areas, if you heard that, you know, you might think that 
you know, like the Salmon River is a good example down in New York, you know, that you got public access. It's great that there'd be a ton of people up there. Is that the case or are there places you can find a a pool on your own up there? Well, another important note is that there's a rotation etiquette in place on the Marguerite. So, and of course, I've never been to the Salmon River in Pulaski, but I know that it. people ask me all the time, is your river crowded? Well, right. Crowded is a relative term. I guess with my experience, I could say that, no, the Marguerite is not crowded. And if you show up at a pool and there's a couple, two, three anglers at the pool, there's a rotation etiquette in place. Normally, there's a bench at most pools, and if there's anybody sitting on the bench, they're waiting to step in rotation at the at the top of the run. You never step below anyone. That's awesome. So that's a... Yeah, it's a friendly, it's a friendly, friendly river to fish and and pretty relaxed. Yeah. And what keeps that etiquette going? Because it's interesting because I think some of these areas, we mentioned one, you know, Sam, and one of some of the rivers out West too, you occasionally get to those places where, you know, you have this huge river, a huge run and, uh, and there are altercations. Um, Like, why do you think the Marguerite is, uh, you've, how has that held up? What can people follow that do that in other areas? Well, and I don't want to sound... Well, you'll know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, um, it's a fly fishing only river. Oh, it is. So I think that contributes to to people being relaxed on the river and the rotation etiquette's been in place forever. So, and it's just based on common sense and, and courtesy. I mean, you take your turn and when you arrive at a pool that somebody else uh, is occupying and fishing, um, the best thing to do is just talk to people. And, and they'll explain the rotation and where to start. And there's a great camaraderie on the river, no competition. It's a great, uh, it's, it's cool to hear. And I, I'll use one of my examples from out West, you know, we were, I was on a big river, uh, you know, on the Deschutes and, uh, and there was, like you said, it wasn't a flying river, but it was a spin fisherman right in the middle of a run, a mate, probably the best run on the river. And he was just anchored up on the bucket. And so the fly anglers, as they were kind of, you know, stepping in, going, they had to like literally get out and go around this guy. And he didn't, you know, basically he's like, hey, screw you guys, I'm fishing. But like, what would happen if somebody posted up on a bucket one down there and didn't do the, you know, that, does that, does that, has that ever happened? Have you ever heard of that? What would be the response there? Well, sure. And, and people's boots can get a little heavy when they get to the the better taking spots in the pool. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Instead of, instead of a step and cast, it's a like three steps and then a cast. Right. So uh, still, um, and now that I'm a little older and I've been around, this is a very polite river to come fishing on. And people will, will, will politely let you know. I mean, um, I'm not saying that there was never, ever, ever any arguments on the river. Sure. As I can remember some more when I was younger, when there was a retention fishery on the river. And now that it's catch and release and it seems to be a, a real sport fishery with a lot of gentlemen rules, which are, it's nice, a nice river to be around in that sense. Amazing. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad we touched on the etiquette because I think that is something that's obviously important. It's the experience, you know, it's not all about catching a bunch of Atlantic salmon or a bunch of fish. It's more about being out there. So it sounds like we've already painted a cool picture of this area. What is, you know, when you think about the river, if we're going up there, you know, what are the chances um, you're going to get one on a dry fly up there versus, say, a wet fly? Do you use those equally or is there times a year when you really want to focus on one or the other? Well, if you really look at the whole season, we fish from June 1st to the end of October. And I mean, we're 
right from the start of the season pretty well. I mean, the first couple of weeks of June, we may still mostly be fishing wet flies at that time, but by, by mid to late June, we're heavy into the dry fly season already. And I mean, the 75, 80% of, of my fly choices throughout the summer, even into early September, it's 75% dry fly. Wow. Now, water temperature and water levels are important things to note uh, during the summer. Just the, the water temps in the 50s and 60s are are conducive to dry fly fishing, and, and Atlantic salmon are not shy to come to the surface, that's for sure. By the time we get to about mid-September, late September, and then into October, we're we're pretty well done our, our, our dry fly fishing. But that's that's still more well more than half the season is comfortable dry fly fishing, productive. And what does that look like when you're out there on a run? Maybe describe that on the dry fly. Well, you get that take. What what is that like? What is the fish doing? Is it um, is it just a hard take? Is it playing with it? What how does that uh, look? Well, sometimes if you're lucky, you'll get to raise a fish a number of times before he actually commits and takes the fly. And, and then thing is, is that Atlantic salmon don't feed on their spawning run. They're born as juveniles and spend the first couple of years of their lives talking about the life cycle. They spend the first couple of year, years of their lives in the river feeding. But then when they head out to the ocean and then come back to spawn, they're not feeding in the river. So sometimes you'll have fish come up to dry flies a number of times and may eventually commit or not, because you have to realize it's normally during the low water periods that we have the better dry fly action. So the tougher conditions, tougher conditions, but the dry fly action can be exciting for sure. Yeah. So, so you want lower conditions. You don't want high water, higher water for a dry fly for good conditions. Well, high water can be good for dries as well. It's just the low water seems to to be more productive okay. for dries in general. Yeah, in general, right? Yeah, there's always differences in here. So, so you have the dry fly. What is? Um, I mean, it sounds like yeah, you guys are using it throughout the summer if the conditions are right. And, uh, and oh yeah, yeah. Talk about the technique. Like, what would somebody? Let's just start with. Let's go back to the gear real quick because I like to know. You know, are we talking? Spay, Scandi, single hand, you know, let's just start with the gear and then we'll go into the other part of it. So what is, what are you guys using out there? So in the summer, of course, and, and I fish a lot of dries and my clients fish a lot of dries. I, I'm suggesting a lot of one-handed rod on the river because dries are just better presented with, with single-handed rods. Hmm. Otherwise, switch rods, I like switch rods in the summer, uh, uh, the larger, longer spay rods I prefer in higher water periods and in the fall. And in the fall. Okay. And what would be, if you're at this, I'm, I'm guessing that you're not making huge casts. Is that the case? Or are there areas where you have to make really long casts for these fish? Well, both. There's places where it's short, short casts. And there's some, in the, especially in the lower river, there's some big pools that require some 60, 70 foot casts. But, yeah. but for the most part, 30, 40 foot, you're hooking a lot of fish 30, 40 feet, 50 feet away from me. This is awesome. And I, I make a comparison. This is really cool. I'm hoping this next year will be the river, to, the, the year to change it, but I've never uh, fished for Atlantic salmon, but I fished for a lot of summer steelhead. And there is a lot of, I know 
books were written about. I mean, I know one of the books, uh, a couple of the books I had were written about Atlantic salmon, but I, as a kid, read them and learned about them for summer steelhead. So I know there's overlap, but it's different, right? But I remember when we started out there, there, I started fishing when there were no spade rods, or at least I didn't know about them. And we were casting eight weight, nine foot eight weights. And yeah, I wasn't a great caster. I was okay, but my arm got tired at the end of the day, you know, and it was just right. kind of right. And then eventually when I got into the spade thing, and now it's obviously evolved, it's just super easy. So is that the case out there? Do you feel like when you, is it a nine weight? And then do you feel like you're getting tired during the day or is it not, that's not really the case? Well, what's happening within the fly fishing industry now is the the line tapers are are to the point where anybody can pick up a, a two-handed rod and next thing you know, they're casting <laughs> 70 exactly. feet of line without even blinking. Yep. So those long-bellied uh, traditional spay lines, which took a lot of mastery to, to cast, that's not part of the, the program anymore. So, uh, and you know, there's a big push with these, uh, single-handed rod spay tapers or outbound short oh, yeah. or, uh, those tapers and where there's a lot of, of, uh, roll casting. And so, yeah, the industry is always evolving and, uh, there's been a big, big push on, especially the shorter, smaller switch rods. I mean, I have a 10 and a half foot, six weight switch rod, two-handed rod that I'm just absolutely loving the last couple of seasons. Yeah. Right. And I also own a, a 15 foot, 10 weight spay rod. And I started with a 15 foot, 11 weight. So, I mean, I've, I've ran that spectrum. Yeah. No, I hear it. I hear it. I, I It's interesting for me because we've had uh, like pretty much most of the people on them told the story about spay and the, the evolution. It's really interesting because it's not even far, you know, the, the Great Lakes down in your area. We were just there a few weeks ago fishing with Rick Kustich down there. And, uh, and that is the short game. I think those are 11 and a half foot like rods. We're using like Skagit style lines for the most part. But I remember as a kid, again, going back to my dad, who was a guide on the Deschutes, he hated the spay rods. You know, he was like, it was anti-spay. So we, so we always had single-handed rods. And to his day, like he doesn't even fish anymore. He never got into spay. Um, now, you know, I learned later, so I'm not a, you know, I'm not an expert, you know what I mean? But I'm realizing now that it's actually, it's taught me a lot. And, but, but I hear what you're saying. I think there is a traditional piece of it, like that single hand. Is that the case on the Marguerite that there's this traditional thing where people still feel like the single handed rod is, is the rod to use versus say going to a Skagit spay summer rod? Well, when you say Skagit right away, I need to, I need to make a comment. Yeah. I'd say that Skagit is less conducive to Atlantic salmon fishing. Okay. In general. Yeah. The Scandi tapers seem to be better adapted to the salmon, Atlantic salmon fishery. Now in October, when we have high water periods and we're fishing the odd sink tip line in the fall, when the water temperatures get around 50 degrees Fahrenheit and a little below that, then your sinking tips and your Skagit line tapers and your higher when in your higher water periods at that time of year with cold cold water yeah then but uh, you know i'm more traditionalist in the sense that for the most part we're approaching the water with with floating lines and, and long leaders uh, at least the length of, of the rod maybe a couple of feet longer and uh especially in the summer it's one-handed rods and dry fly fishing yeah, I hear you. Okay, that makes sense. And I'm glad you made that distinction because, yeah, the stuff I'm talking about on the great South Shore Lake area is 
steelhead. So they're down. You got to force feed this thing into them. And that's why this gadget works great. But again, going back to the West Coast streams, you can say, yeah, the Deschutes, the Clearwater, any of those, you guys are, although I think there are guys going back to the traditional longer belly lines. I mean, you know, that Scandi line, 12 and a half foot spay rod, you know, would probably be similar to a, you know, it is similar to a dry fly, nine foot, eight wake sort of thing. But I'm glad we clarified that. I just want to start there just so we know where we're at. But so let's go, let's on the gear. So talk about that. What does somebody need if they're heading up there, they want to fish for, they want to get one on a dry, what's the fly, what's the uh, line, and then kind of talk leader. For one-handed rods, most people are fishing nine foot, eight weights. Um, the last couple of seasons, I've been I've been fishing a seven weight, 10 foot, seven weight. I fish a loop 7X, 10 foot, seven weight, and I love it. But uh, nine foot, eight weight, floating line, 10 to 12 foot leader, and the white winged, white tail salmon bombers with either a natural uh, spun deer hair trimmed body, either natural, green, different colored bodies, but with, with either grizzly hackle, brown hackle, or orange hackle. Those are your standard salmon bombers the, with the single or split wing at the head, at the eye. Gotcha. So that's the bomber. Yeah, the, the winged bomber. And then you have the the bombers that don't have the front wings, like the new bomber that's come out. It's not a new bomber, but the new name they call it is the Carter Bug. But it's just a salmon bomber with the natural deer hair tail, natural spun body, and brown hackle or orange hackle. Imagine your perfect cast in the pristine waters of Bristol Bay, the heart of the Alaskan wilderness. Togiak Lodge sits in this unique paradise offering unmatched fishing amidst breathtaking landscapes. Envision yourself right now amidst nature's best, with every fish narrating its own epic tale. You can visit togiaklodge.com right now. That's Togiak, T-O-G-I-A-K. Your story woven into the fabric of Bristol Bay, where every cast is a memory, every fish is unforgettable. Orange is a good uh, is a good color for Atlantic salmon. Yes. Yeah. So orange is good, and and the bomber, yeah, is just a basically a spun deer hair body. It's it's kind of a crazy looking fly. You know, it's got this hackle wrapped in it. So what is the bomber? What are you trying to do when you're fishing that? Well, again, that what's important to note is we're not imitating any flying insect that the fish are feeding on. We're not imitating anything. So that's important to note. Right. We're not approaching this fishery like you would a, a trout fishery because the salmon aren't laying in feeding positions, number one. They like the flow, but not the faster water. They like the edges of the flow, not the soft dead water and not the fast, fast water, but the seams, they like the current seams and they're just, they're just hanging out. They're not in feeding positions. And at the same time, when we're fishing dries, a nice soft landing very close above where the fish is holding and concentrate on short drifts as opposed to if you know there's a fish laying right there cast 10 or 20 feet above them and have a long try to extend your drift and mend and extend your drift no hit him right on the nose with the fly a couple of feet up from where he's laying and once the flies past his tail pick up drop it again right there mm. short presentation yeah, how do you know where those fish are? How are you finding them? I mean, if you if you walked up, you didn't know where you've caught fish before you're new to the river. You know, how do you find those fish? Well, when you get to to the river, the first thing you want to look at is the configuration of the flow. So you're you're looking for the fastest moving water. 
And when you get to a pool, the way you can tell where the pool is, is deeper sections of the river. So you get to a deeper section. It's like, okay, the water is deeper here. And then you look for the fastest moving water. And then on the edge of the fast water are the current seams. And then you have eddies on each side a lot of times. So you're looking for the seam, the edge between the fast moving water and the soft water, just on the edge of the fast water. And that's a lot of times where you'll find fish. Gotcha. So if you came down to a river and you were just looking at it and you saw, if you were in a giant pool with no fast water, that probably wouldn't be good. But if you find these areas where essentially there's, there is a fast water part of, there's a thaw, you know, a deeper part, thaw wag, whatever of the river, this side of that, or the other side of that, where closer to you would be a pool. That's the in-between is where you want the kind of that holding water. Well, where the, there's a current, uh, let's say a, the tongue of the current, the fast part of the current. And then on the far side, as you just mentioned, there's a current seam edge. And on the, the inside of that fast water, there's a, the edge of the current. And with dry fly, coming back to the dry flies and where you, how you would approach it with the dry fly is you want to cover the inside seam first, yeah. the seam closer to you. So you always want to cover the, the water close to you. And when you arrive at a pool, you want to start at the head of the pool even in the fast water at the head of the pool, but always cover the water close to you first and work your way across and then down step. We're casting and stepping. So yeah, casting and stepping. Yeah. With dries and wets. Yeah. And then when you, let's say you find a spot that you think there's a fish, you find the seam line, you, you see where it could be, you make the cast. Is it a cast that's kind of down and across at a 45? Or are you trying to cast more upstream? How does that look? I don't cast my dry flies upstream a lot because I like to lead with the fly. So I'll do a reach cast and I'll parachute the, the fly. Like I'll stop my forward stroke. I'll stop early and then I'll drop my arm so that I can present some slack. So when the fly lands, as soon as the fly lands on the surface, I don't want that fly to move at all. I just want it to... It needs to find that current seam drop and then float downstream. And oftentimes it's within the first two to four or five feet of that drift, the fish is coming. If he's going to come, it's very soon after it lands. So this is a, um, this is not like a waking type of pattern. This is literally a dead drift. We're not waking, we're dead drifting. And that's not to say that waking can't work because we hook uh, Atlantic salmon on waking dry flies, not waking, it's more on the swing in the film as opposed to skating. Yeah. What you described there where you drop it with a reach cast and it just sits on the water and floats down in that seam. Is that a, what, how would you describe that, that type of, of fish? That's a dead drift. A dead drift. So dead drift. So what are the other types of presentations you might do? So that's, sounds like that's the one I would choose. If I could fish, I would love to do a dead drift down to a fish on the, <laughs> what else would you be doing there? Well, that's what most people, how most people present dry flies. But then people will, and more so with non-winged bombers, like with that Carter bug, they'll fish it on a wet swing. And it's, it's not necessarily fishing very deep. It's more in the film. Yeah. So waking, if you, if you like, if you want to refer to it as waking. Yeah. But more waking as opposed to skating or okay. skittering. It's not skittering or skating. And of course, we're talking, we're, we're splitting hairs here. Yeah. Literally, sure. any presentation can work. Oh, right. 
right? So we're talking about specific presentations and yes, there's merit to these, to, to talking about specific presentations and, and this works, you know, time and time again. Yeah, this works. So, so going back to that, if somebody's there for the first time, then getting a bomber, like we talked about, and just letting it dead drift in a seam would be a really effective way to have a chance at a fish. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. What's a day, and I and I don't want to talk the numbers game, but I, I like to put it in perspective because, you know, it's like the expectations. You know, if you had a client that's calling you, you're probably going to let him know, right, kind of what it is. So what does that look like? Are we coming in here expecting one fish in a day, one touch, like is a good day, or are there going to be multiple opportunities? Well, and I tell this to everyone. I don't care if, if it's your first time, and I don't care if you've fished 30 Atlantic salmon rivers all over the world in your lifetime. One a day is a good day. Yeah. That's a pretty general statement that I, I put out there pretty loudly. I mean, yeah, do I have days in the season where my clients hook a couple of fish? Or I mean, I had a client with a five-fish day, a beginner last year. I mean, does that happen every day? Of course it doesn't. Uh, it happened a couple times a season at that in, in that regard, or five-fish a day. It happens a couple of times a season. Um, but there's a number of, of uh, two fish days in the season, but one a day is a good day. There's a lot of no fish days. Yeah, definitely. That's it. And one of the cool things about, and again, I haven't been up to that part of the world, but um, it's a beautiful area, right? I can imagine you could just find yourself looking around. Well, describe that a little bit. The mar Well, I don't know if the margarita well, is. Well, it's very, yeah. it's a beautiful, beautiful rural setting with valleys and mountains that are not too big. Like it's a lot of people will say it looks just like driving through Vermont, except you have, you know, you have a, we're fishing a beautiful river. What's nice about the Marguerite as well is you can fish the, the tidal pool and within an hour's drive, you fish the top pool on the river. You can really uh, uh, go look and find fish. You don't have to worry about, oh, well, are we going to be, are we going to be fishing over fish today? That's not a question. Oh, really? We're always, oh, well, that's never a question because you can go to the fish. I mean, the river is only 30 miles long and we fish 20 miles of it. The top 10 miles is sanctuary. Gotcha. So you don't think there's a, a section in there where you're fishing and you're thinking, well, gosh, is there even a single fish in this pool? You're never really thinking about that like that? Oh, sure. There's pools we can go to that there's no fish in. Yeah. But we, we're never... It's not as if we can't find fish. Yeah. How do you know when you get to a place without the feedback or is that what it is? How would you know if you're in a run that maybe didn't hold fish that well? Well, it, it's different if you just show up, but when you're on the river eight to 12 hours a day, every day from the start of the season to the end of the season and the season's 150 days long, I always, I usually tell clients in the first couple of weeks of June, I'll be a better guide in, in mid-July. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so don't, don't take the early spot. Don't get in your early part. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm kidding. But at the same time I'm making a joke of that, but when the season starts, I mean, there's been changes. I like to canoe the river a handful of times in the spring during the trout season. Salmon don't usually arrive till after the first of June. And that's when our salmon season starts, but I like to assess the changes in the pools and stuff. Yeah. For brown trout, do you have sea run brown trout there? We do have sea run browns as well. And, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 60 now, but there was some browns around when I was growing up, but nothing like there is now. Oh, really? There's a lot of browns now. Well, there's a lot more browns and 
it's a funny thing. People don't really target them. Like I'll, I'll be around two or three browns, normally up to 20 inches during my salmon season. And we know there's bigger browns than that, but nobody's pursuing the browns. And that's just because it's not um, well known yet. I mean, and they're sea run, right? So this would be a, a pretty good fight. Well, yes, still not compared to salmon, not in the river anyway. Yeah. How big do those salmon, that's always a thing, right? You hear about it. And I know they, around the world, there's places where you can get huge Atlantic salmon. What would be a average size? What would be a really big fish there? Average size of most salmon in most places, most salmon spend two years in, in the ocean feeding and come back eight to 11 pounds. Two sea winter, what's referred to as a two sea winter fish. Now, some of the Gaspé rivers have have par, the par stage is a little longer. And some of those rivers have fish that spend three years in the ocean before coming back the first time. So their average fish might be 15 or, or better, where our average fish here is eight to 11, 12 pounds, 28 yeah. to 30, 31 inches. Which is a nice fish, which is a really nice fish. That's it a, is still a beautiful, yeah. beautiful fish. Um, we have a, a smaller percentage of one sea winter, which we call grills. On steelhead, you call them jacks, maybe? Uh, yeah, I think depending on where you are, yeah, the jacks. Yeah, it would be jack, yep. They've spent one year in the ocean. They're three to five pounds. Um, if there's grills and larger salmon in a pool, the grills seem to want to come get that fly. Oh, before. So you're mad. So when you pick up a grills, you're not that, that happy. Well, <laughs> any salmon you catch, you're happy. Yeah. But uh, yeah, of course. There's And as there's a smaller percentage of grills, there's a smaller percentage of 15 to 25 pounders. But when you're talking, to, let's, because the 20 pounder is the, that's the one. Everybody's going for a 20 pounder. Well, so the 20 pounder is normally, as opposed to a three sea winter or four sea winter salmon, first time to the river spawning, that 20 pounder is probably third time spawner. Oh, right. So that's the thing about these salmon is that a different than a Pacific salmon that die, these don't all die after they spawn. That's right. So all five species of Pacific salmon die after they spawn and Atlantic salmon can live to spawn two, three, four times. Wow. That's the really cool thing about this is that the more, and I've thought about this many times over the years. And again, that's why I'm hoping this year is the year I, I changed this, but you know, I fish for summer steelhead a lot and there is just so many overlaps between summer steelhead, right? Because steelhead spawn multiple times and they're, di but they are very similar to a Pacific salmon in a lot of ways, even have the same genus. You know, it's this really interesting thing going on. So, but that's it. So Atlantic salmon can spawn. So you could have a fish that comes in maybe three times and it comes in the third time. It's a 20 pound fish maybe or bigger. That's correct. Right. What's the largest fish you've seen, you know, caught Atlantic salmon? I tailed a 48 inch salmon in the Marguerite River about 15 plus years ago for a good friend of mine uh, by the name of Kenny Brinston. He's a mentor of mine. He's still on the river, a fellow from Glace Bay that's that fished the river the last 40 years. He camps here in the summer. And he, um, I can remember it was June 18th and I was guiding a fella from Calgary at the seal pool on the Marguerite. And I showed up at the pool and Kenny Brinston was the only angler there. And we're sitting on the bench, him and I, my clients fishing through the pool and it's mid morning. And 
But Kenny says to me, you know, Robert, I haven't seen a salmon yet. I've been here since June 12th. And we're, you know, it's, it's still low water. We're waiting for the first appreciable rain event. Because normally in the first two weeks of June, whenever we get that first nice shot of rain, we're going to start seeing fish. If it happens in early June, we'll start seeing fish in early June. If the rain doesn't come till the 20th of June, it'll be then between the 15th and 20th before the fish really start to arrive in appreciable numbers. Anyway, it was mid-morning. Kenny says, well, I think I'm going to hit the head to lunch. And I said, well, you might as well go through one more time. <laughs> so he goes through and we had both been there. We both did a number of passes and Kenny goes in behind my client, oh, man. hooks this fish. God. And uh, um, I wasn't using a net then. <laughs> now I use a big wooden net, but, yeah. but hand tailed it. He added on almost an hour uh, for, you know, looking back, it was played maybe a little too long, but the fish- yeah. It was June and the water temperatures were good and the fish took off like a batter to hell out of my hands. But we landed that fish and my client had a Sony handy cam. That's how far back it was. I can yeah. remember. And I have a I have a VHS <laughs> you have the video tape. Still? I need to I have the video on a VHS tape, but I have to get it transferred so that I can see it. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Oh, we should get that out. That's awesome. But uh, it was 48 inches. 48 inches. So I, my guess is, I, you know, again, just guessing, that is that like a 28-pound fish? I would say it was more approaching maybe 35 pounds. Yeah, because they start getting bigger. They, they You can't use the, the That's rule. right. Yeah, they start getting more girth and all that. Yeah. So 35 pounds. What, what did that, when you brought, what was the feeling when, when he tailed it? Like, what, what was that like there? Well, it was unbelievable. I mean- to see a fish that big, I couldn't even think of grabbing it with one hand. I had to tail it with both hands. Oh, you did? Right? Grab his tail with both hands. Two hands. Yes, with two hands. Impossible Damn. to, you know, wow. a 38-inch fish, 38, 39-inch fish is 20 pounds. Yeah. So 48-inch fish is a big salmon. Uh, I've seen God, I've great. seen a number of 40-inch fish, 41 42. Sure. But I haven't really seen much bigger than 41, 42. So this was closer to 50 inches. It's a big, that's a big salmon. Yeah. Did you see it eat the fly? No, I didn't see the take. No. Was it under, was it on a dry fly or on the surface? It was on a dry fly. The bomber? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Orange with an orange hackle. No, Kenny fishes a, a brown one with brown hackle, natural, split white wing, white tail, Calf tail wing and wings and white tail, natural deer hair body, brown hackle. And Kenny, Kenny called his the bunny rabbit. He called old his <laughs> split wing bombers. He called, I'm going to fish a bunny rabbit. That's yeah. just what he called the it. Bunny rabbit. <laughs> this is awesome. And why do you think, uh, you know, maybe this is probably a hard question for anybody, but why do you think that fish or any of those Atlantic salmon are eating a, a bug on the surface if they're not feeding? Well, good question. And of course, it's all speculation, but they have fed as juveniles in the river for a couple of years growing up. They also have fed becoming adults in the ocean, even though it's a different diet. So it's not as if they're not used to eating. So it could be a reflex. It could be a feeding reflex um, in terms of, well, why would they take something that doesn't even resemble anything I always ask the trout angler, 
that asked me that question. Why does a salmon take a fly if he's not hungry or if it's not part of his environment? And I'll say, well, have you ever hooked a trout on, on some pattern that doesn't even look like anything? Yeah. An attractor pattern. So. Yeah. The Euro nymphing is a good example. I mean, those flies are using are like just, they don't look like anything. They have a hot spot in them and they're just kind of crazy looking and they work. Well, it could be a natural predatory response, just a natural predatory response. It could be a feeding reflex. It could be a number of things, playfulness, curiosity. Yeah, everything. Yeah, they're, they're fish. They're just kind of out there. Just That's it. <laughs> what, what is the, I'm really inter- interested in the answer to this because, you know, like real, the reels, right? So click and Paul versus a drag. What do you use there? What, what do you typically use? Well, I, of course, I fished for 25 years with Hardy, Click and Paul reels, um, and they more than serve the purpose. So how does that, how does that click? I mean, the one of the things, and we had somebody, we had a really cool trip down there to the South Shore Lake Erie, we, but we had somebody there, Ed, shout out to Ed, who was on the trip. And his whole goal was to catch a steelhead, his first steelhead on a bamboo spay rod he built with a silk line and a horsehair leader. And a traditional flight and he did it he did it you know it was like this amazing thing on him. i was there i was there for it he did it and jeff liske shout out to jeff he hooked it up for him but but um but he banged his you know he had the click and paw and i mean he banged his knuckle so hard it bled so when a fish is running super hard what's your strategy with a click and paw how do you slow that fish down well a lot of the click and paw reels have the um the exposed rim but otherwise and i've ha- i own jw young Bodex reels, uh, and have my dad's old Bodex reel, and there's no exposed rim. So when you hook a fish on those older reels, you're holding the cork grip, but the line's through your fingers. Oh, gotcha. There you go. Right. So you're yeah. you're you're putting the drag with the line through your fingers and try not to burn yourself. Right. And I mean now, of course, I'm fishing, I'm fishing disc drag reels. I'm fishing loop rods and reels, and with incredible drags systems and uh been fortunate enough to go to to the bahamas the last couple of seasons to bonefish which require you know saltwater capable reels and really good drags but the last number of years i noticed myself maybe the last decade i'm fishing a much tighter drag when i get to fish salmon my even myself i'm fishing with a much tighter drag these days Helena exists as a crossroads between past and present, tame and untamed, mountainous wilderness, and hometown warmth. A place where you can float the river without seeing a soul, stroll through their charming downtown, enjoy breweries and breathtaking views all in the same day. It isn't a secret for passionate anglers that Helena is most sought after for its close vicinity to world-class blue ribbon fishing on the Missouri. Then what is the secret about fly fishing in Helena? The continual slow ripple of the river animals roaming the banks, the solitude of the river surrounded by mountains, and of course, the sound of a rod bending to an epic trout. For those looking for serenity and a low-key fishing destination, Helena's Missouri River begs to challenge new and advanced fly fishing anglers in Montana. They are unexpected, unfussy, unspoiled. They don't pretend to be anything they're not, and they are proud of who they are. But don't take it from us. Come discover Helena's fly fishing secrets for yourself. Visit Helena, Montana right now. That's HelenaMT.com. Are you an avid angler looking for the perfect fly selection? Or perhaps you've just started out fly tying? Smitty's Fly Box offers a monthly subscription service that delivers a range of flies, fly tying materials, and fishing accessories. 
They tailor their selections based on your fishing location, ensuring you get exactly what you need. And Smitty's isn't just any fly supplier. They've been in business for over three decades, delivering quality and expertise. I can personally vouch for their quality, having picked up some dry flies, and they were perfect. It's a perfect time to stock up on flies for your next adventure. Check out their offerings at smittysflybox.com. By subscribing, you're not only getting top-notch flies, but you're also supporting a small business that has had a significant contribution to the fishing community. Remember, that's smittysflybox.com, and let them know you heard about them through this podcast. So you are using a dragged reel when you're fishing Atlantic Salmon. It's not all click and pull. Yes, not anymore, no. Oh, you don't do it. And why not anymore? We're landing fish a lot quicker now than we used to. Like I'm talking over a career here. I went, you know, I'm 60 and I've been chasing salmon since I was a young teenager. So, you know, I fished 25 years with, with spring and click and Paul drag reels. And the last decade or more, we're not using hand tailing gloves anymore. The last couple of years, few years. So we're learning, we're progressing, we're landing fish quicker. We're, we're not taking them out of the water as much for pictures. Uh, we're trying to, you know, practice Keep them wet. Uh, Better catch and release. Yes, keep them wet, get them back to the water, all of that. So the tighter drags on the reels, sure, you want that fish to run from here to tomorrow, but you don't want to have a fish on for 25 minutes that you could land in tent. No, I think that's a good point. And so that's what it is. I think the click and pull, I think we're all, you know, in this thing to have a, you know, the whole thing, right? You start one place and then you slowly try to find, make it harder and harder because that's kind of the way, what makes it fun, right? Atlantic salmon is one of those species that's a challenge because you might get one in a day, one shot. And uh, and if I was going to get one shot, I've talked about this, you know, it's like the click and pull would kind of be fun to hear it, right? To hear that that fish pull off a couple of spools, right? On your end to hear the the click. But, uh, but this is good. So I just, I'm glad we clarified that. I want to go back to the gear really quick. So we're talking gear here. We mentioned the leader, the fly. So what is the lead? What pound? Uh, describe how you build the leader. Is this just like a straight leader? How do you do that 10-foot leader? Well, that's a, I can make that a little long answer mm. as well as that, of course, when we started, we were fishing straight eight or straight 10-pound test or straight eight, straight eight-pound test from fly line to fly. Eight pound, And why was it eight pound versus, say, 15 or 20 do they really leadership? Is that something where they can be potentially spooking them? Well, Atlantic salmon aren't really leader shy. We were um, in higher water, fish 10 pound. And as the water dropped, we fished eight. And then in low water periods, went down to six pound test. Okay. Yeah. And I say the same thing because for me, like summer steelhead, I mean, I, I've fished, grew up fishing eight pound. That was it. It was always eight pound, pretty much tiny flies, size six, eights, you know, but like for the Skeena, you go up there with Brian Niska and he'll be like, hey, we use 15 pound, 20 pound tippet, right? For these steelhead up there. And so I don't know. I'm just trying to figure like, why does it matter between these two? Well, is it bigger, faster water? Yeah, it is. Faster moving flows. Yeah, it is. And and deep water and big water. I mean, I'm, I went to uh, Labrador late last June for a week. I was invited to fish the Pinware and the St. Louis rivers and they're fishing straight 10 pound test. Straight 10 pound. How was the, uh, and we'll get back to the leader. I'm, I wanted to ask you this. So you've been to Labrador. How does Labrador compare to the Marguerite, just overall? I fished the pinware for three days. I'm, I was there just at the very beginning. The run wasn't quite in started in earnest, but 
I had three fish in three days, three hookups, never landed one. Sure. The St. Louis River is another, on another spectrum. That's like going to Russia. Oh, you mean there's lots of fish? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's on, on another spectrum because it's the only lodge, St. Louis River Lodge is the only lodge on the river and it's pretty exclusive and expensive and I was fortunate to, to have been invited there. And without footing out the numbers, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. It was a lot. More than one a day. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Of course. Yeah. St. Louis. Okay. So good. Okay. So, but overall, just the experience, it was similar. I mean, these are similar uh, rivers, the type of fishing you were doing. Were you doing dries there on the St. Louis? Yeah. The numbers of those runs, those rivers in the remote place, that's like going to Alaska. Yeah, that's right. That's it. Going to Labrador, that's the easiest way to, to, to make a statement, to compare it to anything. It's like an American who fishes Montana or whatever, whatever, the Umqua or wherever you fish, the Skeena, this is like going to Alaska. Yeah, this is Alaska. So back about the leaders. So straight eight is what we fished growing up. But then we started tapering leaders from 30 pound tests down to eight pound with sections and blood knots or, and then surgeons knots. But then the, especially in the summer, once the water gets lower with the sectioned leaders, the knots make a wake, especially when you're fishing small wets and, or if you're, even if you're fishing the hitch, well, there's another wake. So, and I think that's why a lot of the Newfoundlanders and in Labrador where, where they fish a riffle hitch, they don't like fishing a sectioned or a built leader. Now, the last number of years, over a decade, I fished those uh, real salmon steelhead tapered leaders, and then I'd add an eight pound tippet to that leader. And in the Atlantic salmon fishing world, the, the Maxima chameleon seems to be pretty popular. And that's what I fished with. Yeah, me too. Me too. That's good stuff. I don't like fluorocarbon. I don't find fluorocarbon necessary for Atlantic salmon. Some people like it. I find it has a lot of memory, but I like mono better. So I, uh, now I'm a lot of times I'm fishing a, a real salmon steelhead leader and I put a two or three foot tippet, eight pound test, uh, maxima chameleon. Gotcha. So that's it. And then what's your, what's the, uh, you mentioned the riffle hitch, but what would be, if you're doing that dead drift of the dry fly, what knot are you using to tie your fly on to your leader? Well, good question too. I mean, I, I like the turl knot. And of course, a lot of my dry flies, it's on down eye hooks and my wet fly, a lot of my wet flies are on up eye hooks, though I do tie some smaller wet flies on a down eye. And I still use the turl knot, whether I'm, I'm using an up eye or down eye. If I use an up eye, I just go up when I start the knot. And if it's a down eye, I go down. Right. And what's the, how do you spell it? The turl knot? T-U-R-L-E, turl. Yeah, turl. Troll knot. And does that, uh, what does that do versus, um, say, a, a clinch knot or open loop? Well, uh, yeah, the improved clinch um, can get stuck to one side or the other. The turl knot, the line comes right out the eye and is free to move from side to side. It's a really good knot. Oh, right. Uh, since the first time I had the bonefish down south, I was using the non slip loop or that lefty cray loop knot. So I've, I've experimented a bit with that knot as well. Yep. The non-slip loop. Yeah. So, but, but you want a loop. Yeah. You don't want a, a tight clinch knot onto your thing because your fly can get turned at a weird, weird angle. Look, we all started with the improved clinch. Oh yeah. We all started there. I mean, everybody did, I yeah. think anyway. And it's like I said, I mean, I, I, 
the last handful of years, I've, I've experimented more with the loop, but the Turl, the last 25 years or so, the Turl knot, I've relied on the Turl pretty religiously. Yeah, the Turl. And is the Turl pretty much an open, when it's done, is it pretty much an open loop on it? Is that how it looks? No, the, the loop wraps around the shank and the eye, and then the line, the leader comes right out the eye. So you don't see the knot. The knot sits in the eye of the hook. Oh, wow. Or behind. Yeah. You're not familiar with the turtle knot? No, I, no, I'm not. No, this is interesting. Yeah. So it sits behind the eye. So you don't see the knot, but isn't there a tag? What about the tag end? Isn't the tag end there somewhere? Well, the tag, you're going to trim the tag. So it's behind there as well. You can YouTube. There's, there's some YouTube yeah. tutorials. Yeah. We'll put one in the show notes. Yeah. I see it. Fly fishing, how to tie a turtle knot. Yeah. There's tons of stuff. So Rio's got one too. Yeah. With Simon. Yeah. Okay. So we'll put that in. Yeah. I got Simon here. Turtle knot tying instructions. So good. We'll get that. And, uh, but that's the idea basically that the thing isn't stuck. So it, it's free to move around a little bit when you're, and, and then you talk down eye versus up eye. So why would you use a one versus the other, other when tying a dry fly, tying on a dry fly? I don't know if it's a, a tradition, just the way it looks. Um, doesn't really matter. The, the salmon, I could tell you one thing for sure. The salmon don't know the difference. <laughs> yeah. Do you, <laughs> do you tie your own fly still or is, do you buy those? Oh, of course. Of course yeah. I do. Yes. What is your, what's your hook that you use typically for tying on? Say, let's just go to the down eye hook. For the larger, I was using Mustad 38941s and I've, now they have the new signature si series hooks, but uh, the Daiichi 2110 yeah. down eye. Is a good dry fly, light wire, um, strong hook. Daiichi 2110 has become my go-to hook for dry flies. Perfect. Yeah. That's great to hear. Yeah, no, we love Daiichi here too as well. So I've been using them for years. That's awesome. So, and, yeah. And they also make a 2117, which is, is still down eye, but it's black instead of bronze. Mm. But I prefer the bronze for some reason. And again, it's personal mm. preference. It doesn't. There's salmon don't know the difference. Yeah. Don't know the difference. Yeah. It's interesting because the, uh, the down eye, I always, I like the down eye too, but the, the up eye is kind of the traditional one and your up eye hooks. What are you using there? Are you using like, um, just your typical black type of hook or what do you use there? Yeah. I like the partridge, uh, single salmon is probably by go to or, but I mean, there's different companies make Gamagatsu's making nice hooks. There's Dayton's making nice hooks. Uh, yeah, there's a bunch. And we're pinching barbs. We're pinching barbs as well. Okay. Is it barbless there? It is. So, but as opposed to, to buying hooks with no barbs, we're pinching barbs. Well, we're still tying on, on hooks that we used to tie on and we still have those hooks and not everywhere is barbless. Although I'm fishing barbless now, period. Yeah, I know. No, I, my first experience of that, and I used to always think, you know, barbed was, was kind of helped you a little bit, but I feel like my first trip to the Skeena quite a while back, I used, we were using barbless and it was amazing because we, I was not losing more fish. I was doing fine. And mainly as, because you know, if you know how to play them, right. Well, what's your tip there? So if you have somebody, if you have this fish on, you, right. Atlantic salmon, fish of a lifetime, you've got it on your end. How do you play that fish? How do you make sure you don't lose it? Well, keep your rod tip pointed up and you want a tight line all the time. You want to stay tight to the fish as much as you can. And the fish is either pulling line from you or you're, you're bringing line in, fight it with that attitude. He's either fighting you or you're fighting him. Don't, you could sit all day 
with a bent rod and no side pressure and no, you can sit all day there with that fish on. Well, I, and sometimes people will say, well, I'm putting pressure. Well, no. Not enough. If you Let's put your rod to the side here and give them a little down and dirty to the side and take a few steps downstream right across. And then you're broadside from them instead of the fish being way downstream from you and see what happens. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Don't let them. Right. So if you can, you want to get them in front of you and then turn your rod in. And are you doing the like pump and then reel to them or how do you get them in? Yeah, you're lowering your rod tip as you're reeling, and then you you bring your rod back up. Yeah. So when you pump, you're raising your rod kind of tip up to the sky or up down to the towards the bank. Well, it depends on where the fish is. If he's way downstream from you, or it's best to get across broadside from the fish as opposed to have the fish way upstream or downstream. Yeah, great tip for sure. Yeah, because if the fish is running on you down or up, you're kind of losing control of that fish. Do they do that quite yeah. a bit when they hit? What's the first thing when you're swinging? One of these bombers, what's the fish? Do you see it come up and and just eat that yep. thing? And then what's the next thing you feel? It's going to break the surface and do some head shakes, grab the fly. He's not normally going to take off immediately like a bonefish would, per se. He's going to come up, grab it, maybe a couple of head shakes, and it might be a second or two, a couple seconds before the fish takes off or the fish jumps. Or Oh, wow. So what do you do when that first, how do you keep from not losing that fish right away. Like what's your first, you see it, eat it. What do you do? Do you, do you do anything? Well, you need to come tight. And a lot of times if you're fishing dry and you have some slack line, you want to get them on the reel as soon as you can, because you want to fight the fish off the reel. Yeah. So when that fish eats, are you setting the hook kind of when it eats? You are. Yes. Like uh, usually a second delay. Once you see the fish, it's a second, one second delay. Then you set the hook on the dry. The wet fly, a lot of times on the tight line swing, the fish hooks itself. You don't have to set the hook on the wet fly swing so much. There's a difference there. Yep. So you wait a second. Just a split second. It's timing. I'd rather you be late on the hook set for dry fly than early. Yeah. You don't want to be early. That's always. My, my dad used to say something about, and I'm not sure if this is true for Lex, but he used to say you you bow to the fish first before you do anything. You know, it's kind of like you bow with your rod. You're almost giving it, you know, setting it up and then you kind of come up. Right. And you can point the fish to the fish with your rod tip when he jumps, but you still want to kind of be tight a little bit, but you don't want to be pointed to the sky when he's jumping. You want to point to him. Oh, okay. So when the fish jumps out, you want to have your rod tip pointing at the fish. Yeah, I usually do that. So when he falls, when he falls, he falls on less of a tight line than if you got your rod, the all the line out of the water, and he's jumping. He could jump on the line too if you if you're too tight. Oh right, gosh. Well, anything else we're missing here as far as the the setup? You know, getting on the river and um, and trying to find your first fish. No, I think that's we've covered a lot of stuff. Yeah, the Margaries is an easy access river. Um, we're in a rural area, but. It's not as if you got to walk uh, for half an hour, an hour to get to a pool. Five, 10 minute walk from the road, from where you park, you're at the pool at the most. This is awesome. Well, let's take it out of here. We've got a little segment, our conservation corner segment, where this one today, you mentioned it, uh, presented by Daiichi today. And uh, the cool thing is about this is we're always trying to you know put together trips, but find a conservation group. And I recently was pretty excited. We had Patagonia founder, uh, Yvonne Chouinard on the podcast and he talked about, you know, he's always thinking about conservation, obviously 
But who out there, like who would be a company, can you give a shout out to some conservation group uh, that's in your neck of the woods or anybody you know of that people might be able to check out? Well, yeah, the Marguerite Salmon Association, Nova Scotia Salmon Association, and Atlantic Salmon Federation have all done great conservation work uh, with regards to Atlantic salmon and uh, uh, locally, especially the Marguerite Salmon Association. Awesome. And we'll, we'll get links to those uh, folks in the show notes and hopefully maybe down the line we can get them on as well. And I'm sure they're doing a lot of the same work, similar work that you hear around, you know, down the U.S. as well, kind of uh, fish passage and uh, habitat improvements, things like that. Are those, do you know, are those some of the, what's the biggest thing limiting? Because you hear about Atlantic salmon, some really, some obviously downturns. You hear some good stories too about recovery, but what is the biggest uh, limitation or factor there that affects Atlantic salmon? I think a big, big factor that affects the Atlantic salmon runs and the maintenance of the runs is the commercial fishing in Greenland. So there's approximately 2,000 salmon rivers in Atlantic Canada, and all these salmon, when they leave the rivers of their birth to go to the ocean to feed before coming back to spawn, they're heading to Greenland, and there's some commercial fishing going on there. Although there is there is work being done actively by the Atlantic Salmon Federation and the North Atlantic Salmon Fund it was set up to buy out some of the, the commercial fishery, fishing licenses and stuff so that they aid these commercial anglers to stay home. They're still working on that, but that's a big limitation. That's one big thing. Yeah. Do you see between the years, you know, any given year this year, next year, five years from now, do you see a lot of variation in run size? Are you seeing some years where you notice like, wow, there's definitely not as many fish or there's a lot more fish? It can be like that. And it can be river to river as well and generation to generation or year to year, because it all depends on, on egg survival. You know, if the fish are coming back for the first time, five years, two years as juveniles, and then two years, four or five years old. So depending on what type of winters the eggs had, when they were in the incubation period, there's so many factors. So, but it can change year to year. Shetty Camp River Salmon Association has been doing great work as well. Rene O'Coin. Okay. How do you spell the Shetty Camp? How do you spell that camp? C-H-E-T-I-C-A-M-P. Shetty Camp. Oh, okay. Yeah. Shetty Camp. Perfect. Okay. And so if we're coming up there, if we're, say, driving in or just uh, heading up there, where could somebody stay? Are there are there um, these kind of like Airbnbs, lodges? What would you recommend there? Well, there's tons of Airbnbs and VRBO properties, but in the Marguerite area, there's the Normal Way Inn, there's the Island Sunset Resort, there's the Beginnerville Salmon Lodge, there's the Duck Cove Inn, and then, as I mentioned, if you look online, there's a ton of Airbnb and VRBO properties to be had. Okay. And there are lodges. So is there literally a lodge where you could go up there and, I mean, obviously people could call you and get book a trip with you, but are there also lodges where people, they do everything like kind of like a, the Alaska style lodge with guides and everything? Not like what you're referring to. No, uh, like an all-inclusive package. Not really. Yep. So you get your place. So you get your lodge and you can kind of get your food in a good place and then probably just call you. You would be, if you had available. Are there other guides too up there? Because if you're, I'm sure you get full. So if you don't have room this year or next year, are there other people, lots of guides? There's not a lot of guides, but I'd say there's less than a handful that really do any amount of guiding, but there's two or three other guides that I recommend in the area. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll have people check in with you first. And if they can't, if you don't have availability, maybe you can let those folks know where else they can go. Right on. 
Yeah, that sounds great. And then, and then, yeah, give us a one more historical. I, I kind of love the history here. What is about that area? You know, do you are you into the history? What's anything unique there about Marguerite, Cape Breton, that whole part of the world? Well, I think if you look back, let's say a hundred years, Quebec, the Miramichi, even Lee Wolf when he started going to Newfoundland, these were expense still expensive propositions. Again, going back to the fact that Nova Scotia had all public water and uh, not these private water lodges that you're going to see in Quebec. And on the Miramichi, there's a lot of private water. And so Nova Scotia was always known as a place for equal opportunity. I mean, it was all public water, public access, and relatively inexpensive because Atlantic salmon fishing can kind of be a a rich man's or, or used to be more and can kind of be expensive enough to to pursue so i think that's even a hundred years ago when because people have been coming to the marguerite for for that long americans doctors that were here in the early 20s and that ended up having owning properties and building cabins here so there's a museum on the river as well oh there is there's a museum uh, for just for the the whole area yes, there is the marguerite salmon museum oh really so it's all about a museum just for atlantic salmon the fishery. 100%. Oh, man. There you go. That's a perfect destination. Okay. Well, we will um, we'll leave it there, uh, Robert, and definitely would love to keep in touch with you. I'll send everybody out today to dryflysalmon.com, a real easy way to find you, dryflysalmon.com. They can check in with you. And uh, and if, you're, if people are listening now and they're thinking, hey, I want to do a trip in 2024, do you have some availability or is it something where you got to look out a little further? Oh, no. I still have availability. Bookings are coming in nicely, but I I do still have availability. Oh, good. Okay. Perfect. All right, Robert. Well, thanks again for all the time today. This has been awesome. I love the fact that we dug into dry flies because I think getting a Atlantic Seven on a dry fly, I, I can't imagine anything better. So I appreciate all the time today and looking forward to keeping in touch with you. All right, Dave. It was great chatting with you as well. And thanks for having me on. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.